Good morning, Bethel. Good to see you all this morning. So this morning's scripture reading is from Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 37 through the end of the chapter. And if you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, it's found on page 960. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 37, page 960. And one of the first things we're going to read is, now when they heard this, just to give you some context, the this that's referred to in that very first verse is the Jewish audience hearing that Jesus Christ, whom they crucified, was the Messiah. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Please be seated as we go to the Lord in prayer. Morning, Bethel. So if you are new with us, or if you haven't been here in a few weeks, we are currently going through a series called Love Your Literal Neighbor. Our typical practice at Bethel is to preach through the Bible book by book, um, but every so often we do like to take a break and focus on specific topics. And so uh, for the past, past few weeks, we've been thinking about biblical hospitality. What is it? Why is it important? And how do we live it out among our literal neighbors? So in their book, The Simplest Way to Change the World, Biblical Hospitality of a way, as a Way of Life, which we've been recommending, Dustin Willis and Brandon Clements define biblical hospitality like this. At its core, the practice of biblical hospitality is obeying the command in Romans 15:7 to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. It's receiving others into our lives, into relationship, and yes, even into our homes. 
It welcomes Christians as a way to walk in the truth that we've been made family through the gospel, and it welcomes non-Christians in an attempt to model and extend the gracious invitation we've received from God in Christ. That's biblical hospitality. That's been our uh, vision for this series, what we've been working toward. Many of you have probably heard of or seen the show Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. If you're not familiar with it, it's a kids program. It aired from the 1960s all the way up to 2001, and it was hosted by uh, a soft-spoken, a gentle, a cardigan-wearing man named Fred Rogers, who in the show he speaks to, he entertains, and he educates kids. A documentary recently came out on the life and worldview of Fred Rogers called Won't You Be My Neighbor? I've read great reviews about this film, and yesterday I um, watched the trailer for it, and the trailer by itself um, I felt like was really moving. So commentators in that trailer, they talk about how Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood didn't have all the bells and whistles that you'd expect from a hit children's program. Uh, they talked about how Fred Rogers helped kids process some really serious topics like death and assassination even, and racism and divorce. And they, they talked about how Fred Rogers, quote, had a singular vision of kindness and love. In that trailer, footage is even included of Rogers saying, love is at the root of everything, all learning, all relationships, love or the lack of it. In the trailer, there's also audio of Fred Rogers commenting on the question that we probably all most know him for, won't you be my neighbor? He says this, well, I suppose it's an invitation. It's an invitation for somebody to be close to you. The greatest thing that we can do is to help somebody know that they're loved and capable of loving. One of my favorite singers, songwriters, authors, not many people fit that bill of like all three, but one guy that I really like does. His name is Andrew Peterson. Uh, he posted a comment about this documentary on his Instagram feed that I noticed yesterday. Here's what he said. You guys, this movie is one of the most encouraging, inspiring, and affirming I've seen in a long time. Honestly, it's hard to think of another that got to me so much. Maybe it's because I'm a child of the 70s who grew up watching Mr. Rogers every morning, or maybe it's because I've struggled for most of my life to believe God loves me, but my heart was ready to burst after seeing this. So why do you think that Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, why do you think that a documentary like Won't You Be My Neighbor strikes that kind of chord with people? Why do you think that is? I think there might be a lot of reasons, but one that comes to my mind is this, that there's something, there's something deeply ingrained in us as human beings that longs to be loved, that longs to be welcomed, that longs to be known. And Mr. Rogers, with his loving, gentle invitation of won't you be my neighbor, provides that for people. So today, we're finishing up the Love Your Literal Neighbor series, 
by looking at Acts 2, 37 to 47. I think this passage has much to say, not just about biblical hospitality, but also about the love, the welcome, the invitation that we all most long for. So we're going to work through the text in three sections. You may notice that these are our core values at Bethel. So one is gospel. Our hospitable God has made a way for sinners to dwell with Him through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and He has invited and welcomed those near and far to have a seat at His table. That's the really good news. Uh, Two is community. The gospel creates and shapes a church characterized by biblical hospitality. And three, mission. The hospitable church lives on mission and invites others into the family. So let's start first with gospel. This is Acts 2, 37 to 41. Before we dive into those verses, let's step back and review what's happened so far in the book of Acts. So Jesus has died and risen from the dead, just as He said He would. And in chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, he tells us, that Jesus presented himself alive to the apostles after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus tells the apostles to wait in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit. In Acts 1.8, just before Jesus ascends into heaven, he elaborates on that a little bit. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, fast forward to Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost. So Pentecost means 50th. It was a celebration that took place on the 50th day of the Feast of Weeks, and it marked the end of the grain or the wheat harvest. On this day, Israelites, they gathered in Jerusalem to offer to the Lord, among other things, a grain offering of new grain. R.C. Sproul, if you're familiar with him, he calls Pentecost uh, the Jewish Thanksgiving of the Old Testament. Maybe that helps us um, grasp it a little bit, the Jewish Thanksgiving of the Old Testament. So in light of what's getting ready to happen in Acts 2 on Pentecost, One other commentator, he puts it like this. He says, the holiday celebrated the wheat harvest and in some Jewish tradition was also associated with the giving of the law and the renewal of the covenant. Some of these were about to celebrate a new kind of harvest and covenant renewal. So this commentator, he says that because on the day of Pentecost, after Jesus ascended into heaven, He made good on that promise to send the Holy Spirit. So after Jesus ascends into heaven on the day of Pentecost, the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. The Spirit fills the apostles, and the apostles, they begin to speak in other languages. Now, that's incredibly significant in its own right. God kept His Word, just like like He always does, and God sent the promised Holy Spirit. He sent the Helper to His people. Now, this is also important because of when it happened. 
So many people gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, so much so that, that Luke tells us in Acts 2.5, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And so these individuals all gathered together for the Feast of Pentecost. They hear the apostles telling the mighty works of God in their own languages. Many of those people were amazed at this, but not all were as impressed. Some said that the apostles were drunk. And so it's into that situation that the apostle Peter preaches the powerful sermon that's recorded in Acts 2. So Peter speaks to the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, and he explains how what just happened, how the sending forth of the, of the Holy Spirit fulfills what was declared previously in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. If you're looking in your pew Bible, and you can find all of this on page uh, 910. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32 is quoted in verses 17 to 21 of Acts 2. It says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the blood to moon, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, Peter explains that this has been, at least in part, fulfilled in your hearing. The Holy Spirit has come. The promise has come. God has made good on His Word like He always does. And so, Peter continues, and he charges his hearers with crucifying and killing Jesus the Messiah, by the hands of lawless men. Peter says that Jesus was raised from the dead because it wasn't possible for him to be held by it. Peter says that Jesus was exalted at God's right hand and that Jesus poured out the promised Holy Spirit as they witnessed. And he sums all of this up in verse 36. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So now, in Acts 2.37, when the men of Israel, when they hear this, that this Jesus, the Messiah, that they crucified him, they respond by saying, brothers, what shall we do? They're cut to the heart. They experience godly grief over their sin. They experience true, genuine conviction from the Lord. And so, understandably, they ask the apostles what they need to do. And how does Peter respond to that question? Does Peter tell these men to run and hide because the very person you killed is the Messiah, the risen King of the universe? Does Peter try to shame them for what they did and really rub it in to make sure they feel really sorry? Does Peter tell them, you know what, there's nothing you can do and dust off his feet and move on? No, 
Peter delivers the good news. In verse 38, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. A couple of things to note here. One, repentance. Repentance is a change of mind. It means to turn away from your sin and turn to God in faith. It means to forsake your sin and rebellion against the Lord and turn to Him and embrace Jesus and the forgiveness that He offers. And two, baptism. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality. It's a way to publicly declare that you have died to sin and been raised to new life in Christ. It's not required for salvation. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So baptism is not required for salvation, but that said, baptism is an expected initial act of obedience, so much so that Peter here can say in the same breath, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is a wonderful promise. This is an invitation. This is an invitation that echoes Joel 2, 32, that was quoted in um, verse 21 of our chapter. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And who's this promise for? Is it just for the men of Judea? Is it just for the men who dwell in Jerusalem? No, Peter says in verse 39, for the promise promise of forgiveness, the promise of the Holy Spirit to everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, for everyone who turns from their sin and trusts Jesus to save. That promise, Peter says, is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Those who are far off, meaning non-Jews, the Gentiles. In other words, the promise is for everyone everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And what was the result of this good news going forth? Well, that's verse 41. So those who received His Word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So on the day of Pentecost, when many Jews were in Jerusalem for a feast celebrating the wheat harvest, God issues forth an invitation through Peter a promise of salvation to all who repent and believe, and their result is a massive spiritual harvest. Our hospitable God sets the table. Our hospitable God opens the door. He puts out the welcome mat, and He invites all people, both near and far, to come to the feast. That's what's happening in Acts 2. That is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus, the righteous, died for the unrighteous that He might bring us to God. And because of His death and resurrection, everyone who turns from their sin and trusts Jesus to save will be declared not guilty by God, will be forgiven by God, and will receive the promised Holy Spirit. And that promise 
that promise of salvation is not just for a select few who are privileged to have been chosen to have a seat at the table. It's for those who are near and far. That promise is for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. Like Pastor Chris said a few weeks ago, the gospel comes with an invitation, and this invitation is broad. And so if you're hearing this this morning, and if you're here and if you're not a Christian, guess what? That invitation, it's for you. God doesn't ask you to bring Him your best efforts. God doesn't ask you to clean up your act before you come to Him. God asks you to lay down your weapons, to turn from your rebellion and receive the free gift of salvation that He offers. God asks you to humbly own your sin, to see your need for Him, to turn from your sin and receive this free gift. So please do that this morning. If you are here and you are not a Christian, please trust in Jesus with repentant faith. If you'd like to talk more about that, come and get me after the service. I would love to chat or set up a time later to meet. And for those of us here this morning who are trusting Jesus, rejoice in this good news. Did you, did you catch the fact that this promise that is issued forth, the promise in verse 39 when Peter says, the promise is for you, did you catch who he's speaking to? Like, he's speaking to the very people he just said in verse 36, crucify Jesus. So he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then he issues forth this glorious invitation to come and receive salvation. That's how God works. And if you're a Christian, God's done that for you. You and I both put Jesus on the cross with our sin. The worst sin that we ever committed was there on that day when our sin nailed him to the cross. We're guilty. We are lawbreakers. But the good news of the gospel is that in Christ, by grace through faith, God has forgiven us and God has welcomed us in. So that's news worth celebrating this morning, that the Lord has invited us to come to him and that the Lord, through Jesus, has welcomed us home into his family. So that brings us to our second point, community. This is Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. So in Acts 2, 41, Luke tells us that the church grew to over 3,000 souls through the proclamation of the gospel. And now, in Acts 2, 42 through 47, Luke shows us what that church looked like. So he says, this is starting in verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the teaching that they would have received from Jesus, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, that which likely signified the Lord's Supper and, uh, and also meals together. So to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe or reverent fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
So in other words, they held their possessions, they held their wealth with open hands. They were ready and willing to help those in the church who were in need. In verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In their book, The Simplest Way to Change the World, Dustin Willis and Brandon Clements sum up this passage like this. They say, the first church founded after the Holy Spirit arrived at Pentecost in Acts 1 was marked by pervasive love and care for another. Unlike many modern churches, which are centered around a physical building, they seem to be a people who lived hospitality everywhere they went. Yes, verse 46 says they met together corporately in the temple, but the same verse in the surrounding context makes it clear that the church also grew in the homes of ordinary believers. They broke bread and shared meals together. They devoted themselves to prayer and fellowship with one another. They were together so often and woven together so intricately that they began to notice one another's needs and sell their possessions to meet them. What was the result? Awe came upon every soul. Wonders and signs occurred. The community ate with gladness, and God added new believers to their number daily. In other words, the early church certainly gathered corporately at the temple, but the existence of the early church went far beyond the temple. The church left the building quite literally and became the church in one another's homes around meals and prayers and shared relationships. God used this community and hospitality to bring many more to his table and into his family. Their everyday ordinary lives devoted to biblical community and hospitality were a vital part of the church's missionary advance. As they shared meals together and practiced hospitality with one another in their homes, they became a compelling demonstration of the good news that could create such a community. Everyone was invited in, into this community centered on God's hospitality to sinners. So our hospitable God has made a way for sinners to dwell with him through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And God has invited and welcomed those near and far to come and have a seat at his table. As sinners respond to that invitation with repentant faith, a community of believers is formed, grown, and shaped. And it's a community that reflects the loving hospitality of the God who saved them. That's what's happening in Acts 2, 42 through 47. So as we've gone through the Love Your Literal Neighbor series, we've mostly focused on hospitality toward our neighbors, hospitality toward non-Christians. But let's not forget that biblical hospitality must exist here in the church to one another. Paul says in Romans 12, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Seek to show hospitality. That means look for ways to open your heart and your home to your brothers and sisters at Bethel. Look for ways to welcome one another, to do good to one another, to share life with one another, and to come alongside one another and follow hard after Jesus. And 
what happens when we live life this way? What's the result? Well, in John 13, 34 to 35, Jesus puts it like this. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So as we pursue this vision, as we become more and more so a loving, hospitable people who reflect our loving, hospitable God, we communicate something profound to a world that is so often characterized by sin and loneliness and isolation. To borrow that phrase from Willis and Clements, we become a compelling demonstration of the good news of the gospel that could create such a community. Willis and Clements in their book, they give us at least two examples of what this can look like. I wanna share both of these with you. So here's the first one, they say this. Letting others see a picture of Christian community in the way we relate to one another by grace is an incredible gift and exhibits truth in ways they may not see otherwise. I, Dustin, one of the authors of the book, he says, I have seen this time and time again with one of my best friends, Vince, who is not a believer yet. On numerous occasions, he sees our friend Andrew, who is a believer, and me confront each other, confess sin to each other, repent, and walk in forgiveness with each other. I am unapologetically Christian in the way I live in front of Vince. He respects me more for that than if I hit it. He has commented specifically about how Andrew and I have each other's backs in a way that he has not seen before. I believe what he is seeing is a community centered on the cross. Since the cross confronts our sin, causes confession, leads to repentance, and delivers forgiveness, those ideas are the simple values that Andrew and I live out consistently in front of Vince. So as we live out the gospel, with one another at Bethel, it presents a compelling demonstration to those around us. Another example that they give centers on the way that we engage with one another and invite each other into our homes. So listen to this. They say, we've also found that having Christians in our homes regularly piques the interest of our neighbors because it's so rare for people to regularly have groups at their houses. We've had numerous neighbors ask us, what do you do on Thursday nights? We have one neighbor couple who have become good friends of ours, and before we knew them, one Thursday they happened to walk by our house when people were arriving. Evidently, when someone opened the door, the rest of us inside yelled, hey. A few weeks later, my wife Christy met the other neighbor wife, Katie. She asked Christy what we were doing that night. Christy told her, and Katie said, oh, gotcha. To be honest, it reminded me of a Bud Light commercial, the way everyone cheered when the person walked in. I feel like have more Christian gatherings that could be confused with the Bud Light commercial is a good goal for us as Christians. So don't let the Bud Light part of that trip you up. Like, understand the point that he's making. The point that he's making is he's having Christians regularly gather in his homes. And what's being displayed is a loving, rich, joyful community. And as this one neighbor walked by, she noticed. So we can display this kind of community to our neighbors, to the people who live around us, 
by living authentic Christian lives with each other in front of them and by having each other into our homes regularly. And there are a host of number of ways, that, a host of other ways that we could do that. So the question is, though, are we really living that out? If we only see hospitality as something we extend toward those who are far off from us, we've missed a mark. We need to think about and intentionally pursue biblical hospitality with one another here. But we do need to intentionally extend the Lord's loving welcome toward those who are outside. As Rosaria Butterfield says, nourishing the family of God and compelling those outside of God's favor to come to your table are the twin heartbeats of hospitality. It's a both and. And that brings us to our last point, mission. This is verse 47 of Acts 2. It just says, this early church, they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, our hospitable God welcomed us into his family and seated us at his table. And he's formed us into a hospitable community that should be known for our loving care for one another. And finally, he's called us to be a hospitable community on mission to welcome in our neighbors, to call them to come to the feast and be fill, filled. That's what the book of Acts is all about. The gospel powerfully going forth to those who are near and those who are far. So remember Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That actually happens in the book of Acts. The gospel comes to those in Jerusalem and the Lord adds to the church those who are being saved. The gospel comes to those in Judea and the Lord adds to the church those who are being saved. The gospel comes to those in Samaria and the Lord adds to their number those who are being saved. And the gospel comes to the end of the earth, if you will, and the Lord adds to their number those who are being saved. Just think about how Acts ends. The Apostle Paul is in house arrest in Rome. We've come a long way from Jerusalem to get to Rome. You might call that, in a sense, the end of the earth. And what does Luke tell us? He ends his book with this note in Acts 28, 30 to 31. He, that's Paul, lived there, that's Rome, two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to them, all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So Acts ends with Paul in house arrest in Rome, extending hospitality to people while he's in prison. Think about that. How does that lay our excuses bare? Paul's doing this from prison. And Luke is intentional to tell us that Paul proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. So the gospel goes forth through God's hospitable people. It reaches those who are near and it reaches those who are far. Bethel, this work is continuing and we have the great privilege of participating in it. 
Before we came to Bethel, Whitney and I were part of a church that was affiliated with a network called Acts 29. So if, if you just heard me say the Apostle Paul, the situation with the Apostle Paul at the end of Acts in chapter 28, a network called Acts 29 might sound a little bit odd to you because there is no Acts 29. Acts ends at the 28th chapter. But that's precisely the point. That's the point of the network. It's that we are Acts 29. We are the Acts 29 church. We are the ones who get to declare to the world and to our literal neighbors that great promise that we read in Acts 2.39 for the promise, the promise of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit given to everybody who calls on the name of the Lord, to everyone who turns from their sin and trusts Jesus to save. That promise is for you, it's for your children, and it's for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And we get to do this together here in Wilmington. And so let's not just reflect the hospitality of God in the way that we welcome each other. Let's also extend the hospitality of God by welcoming those near and far, by proclaiming the promise that everyone who repents and believes will be saved. So one way to put feet on this, dads, today is Father's Day. What better message could you ask for on a day like today? The promise of salvation to all who believe is not just for you. That promise is for your kids. And you as a father have the incredible privilege and responsibility of pointing your children to Jesus. Own that today. You know, if you're thinking, Oh, I've, I've sinned there. If this reminds you of how much you have failed in this task, repent. Go to God and confess there's grace. So repent of the ways that you have failed and ask the Lord to help you daily, consistently show Jesus to your children. Ask the Lord to call your children to themselves and save them, to let this promise that's extended to them become a reality for them. And Bethel, this promise of salvation to all who believe is for our literal neighbors. So let's be intent to welcome others as Christ has welcomed us. Let's be intentional to show our neighbors biblical hospitality, to get to know them, to invite them into our hearts and homes, to do good to them, to live Jesus out in front of them, and to call them to repent and believe the good news. There are so many ways that we could begin to live this out. You could take walks in your neighborhood so you meet your neighbors. You can invite your neighbors into your home for dessert and coffee. You can team up with your community group and other brothers and sisters here at Bethel and have some of your neighbors over to your house to play games. And we could keep going. But the point is this. Seek to show hospitality, not just to your church family here, but to those in your neighborhood intentionally look for ways to follow that call that's in the book, The Art of Neighboring, and move down the line with your neighbors. Seek to go from stranger to acquaintance to neighbor. Pray for grace from the Lord to live out what Rosaria Butterfield calls us to in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She says, 
The hospitable meet people as strangers and invite them to become neighbors, and by God's grace, many will go on to become part of the family of God. This transition from stranger to neighbor to family does not happen naturally, but only with intent and grit and sacrifice and God's blessing. So with the Lord's help, with dependence on Him, let's get to work. And let's do so knowing that a day is coming when we will be with all of God's people, with brothers and sisters from every tribe and tongue and people and nation gathered around the table of the Lord, rejoicing in the presence of our God. Isaiah 25, 6 to 9 looks forward to that day. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away all tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The simplest way to change the world, it ends with a similar reflection on our eternal home with God and one another. But it adds a great closing exhortation that I think is fitting to finish with today. So I'll read this to us and then we'll pray and move into a time of community discussion. It says, but friend, as good as our eternal home is going to be, we are not there yet. We look forward to it with the utmost anticipation while knowing that if the marriage supper of the Lamb hasn't yet happened, that means there is still work for us to do. There are people still to be invited to that eternal table, and God is patient with His plan not wishing that any should perish apart from him. Such is our call as those who have been adopted into God's family, to keep spreading the good news that God is not distant or loveless or disinterested, but gracious and slow to anger and actively working to be hospitable to us for all eternity. In light of this reality, let's take seriously our call to model his gracious hospitality to our neighbors. Let's live in view of this eternal banquet table and pray for our friends, coworkers, and anyone we come in contact with. Let's use our homes to be micro-representations of that final banquet table, places where believers gather around the food and drink God has graciously provided, celebrating that God has brought us to Himself and open that sacred space to all who are far from Him. Let's become relentlessly warm and welcoming because we've been relentlessly welcomed in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, we don't deserve your salvation. We don't deserve your welcome. We don't deserve an invitation to, into your family. But Father, we praise you that you have given us these things, that you have invited us to have a seat at your table, that you have, through Christ, welcomed us into your family, that you have 
adopted us as sons and daughters, that we are brothers and sisters in Jesus, the family of God. Lord, I pray that you would please give us grace to extend the loving hospitality you have shown us to each other here as a church family and, Father, to those outside of our family. Lord, please let the gospel through us go to those who are near and far. Let our kids hear it. Save the children here in our church family who don't know you. And Lord, let it go outside of here to our neighborhoods. Lord, let us relentlessly pursue that vision. Let us spend ourselves for the good of other people. Let us do so in your strength. Let us do so for the sake of Christ and his great name. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.